What's up, Saruti? What's going on back there? Not chilling. Same old. What's good? Nothing. I was in um I know it's going to shock some people, but I was in a pretty pissy mood last night. I did this thing where I kind of mapped out my day, and I was like, I'm going to clean the bedding. And I don't know if something's wrong with my dryer. I think that's what it led to. So I did that thing where I I cleaned the sheets, and they just weren't going to dry. And I knew I had to go to bed early because I had to be up at 5 today. So the whole... The last two hours of my night was checking the dryer every 20 minutes to separate the linens, although it's not linen. Um, and it just was wet. It was just, I was like, you know what's going to happen? You're going to end up putting wet sheets on your bed, and that's how you're going to try to fall asleep. And it dawned on me a little bit more that I was like, we could have a much bigger issue that no way something else is wrong with my house. Um, the dryer doesn't work. Although the dryer, I can't really blame anybody this for this one except for um, the people I bought the dryer from, but they're actually a huge sponsor, so I'm not going to do that. Not a sponsor of this podcast, but, you know, you never know. You never know. We could be doing washer-dryer stuff right here, live reads. Yeah, but that's you know? one of those things that you can't, like, you can never rush, right? You know, drying sheets, especially if it's, like, a comforter, it's just going to take you hours upon hours upon hours. you probably got to do them one at a time, and you got to know that going in. Yeah, but see, the thing is, is I've, I've done them, I've bunched them up, and it's not the comforter, you know, it's the duvet, it's the, you know, and these Still. are things younger guys are listening to going, wait a minute, isn't that the thing my mom buys me from Marshalls before yeah. I go to college? I didn't have a like, duvet until like two years ago, true story. You didn't? No, never no. used a duvet. Duvet's a sign of, every. not everybody's ready for the duvet at the same time, and, you know, when I first started experimenting with the duvet, I'd probably looking at, I don't know. 21, 22, and I was like, oh, wow, this is this is a big deal. But then I had, like, scuzzy friends that had a duvet that thought they were kind of like, you know, an aristocrat because they had a duvet, and I'm like, you never wash it, and it's one of those hybrid comforter duvets where it's not really even separated, and it's just that one thing that you flatten out on your bed, and that's how you start your day, and you're acting like, you know, you live in the Four Seasons. So that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, that's that's not even – that doesn't really count. I didn't, I didn't even really use – like legit sheets. I would just use like a blanket and sleep on top of my other sheets because I didn't want to make my bed. That's how lazy I used to be. I don't do a full blown folded sheet. Um, you know, I've got the fitted sheet. I have the loose sheet, but I'm not like folding it over and tucking it in every time. Like, you know, I'm not in the military. I don't have a, well, my dad doesn't do my allowance anymore, you know, so <laughs> I, uh, I make the bed every day. Don't get me wrong. Because a girl that I thought was really, really hot once was like, I think we were out and she said, um, she said, we can't ever trust a man who doesn't make his own bed in the morning. And I was like, hmm. What does that even mean? <laughs> like, I, don't I don't know. Even... Her dad probably said it to her. It didn't even make any sense then. But at that time, I was really impressionable. And I was like, wow, that's actually a great point. And now I just make my bed all the time. And we're not together. So it doesn't really matter. But, you know, I got a bed in case, in case, you know, I get caught in a drive-by or something like that and i'm not home like whoever has to come and, and take the stuff out of my house they'll be like well guy made his bed every day so there's that i think at least i think we can all agree on this as no one in the history of making beds has ever said well he never made his bed so screw him but no one ever said hey he made his bed every day what's wrong with him and they were like no he made his bed every day good for him Right. Yeah, but I don't know if that's ever legitimately been held against someone for like, other than like a girl coming over to be like, oh, this guy's a slob. Like no other part of life does it matter if you make your bed or not. No, I don't think, 
I don't think that anybody's knocking anyone in society because of it. Uh, I just think that you get credit for it, right? And it's, it's a nice it, touch. Maybe not a, I'll say that. Yeah, right. Maybe, a nice, maybe that's maybe all a I'm hint saying. Of sophistication, maybe pretentious, but still, it's nice. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's nice if, you know, for those of you that are really young and there's like four of you to an apartment, some of you haven't made a bed ever in your life. And, you know, hey, I've been there too, but, um, you know, just clean a the sheets. Bit yeah, but cleaning the sheets, you got to do that regularly. Those are actually supposed to be washed. Uh, and last night they were, they were wet and they were cold and it sucked. It really sucked. And you don't have a backup set either? Because that's what usually what, what our go-to plan is. Like, I'll just leave them in there because I know they're not going to be done, and I'll just put the backup plan on, and then I'll wash them, like, days later. I got a backup room. I mean, I got it fully oh, ready you, to go. You just slept in the guest room. Then. See, I, but I didn't want to sleep in the guest room last night because it's darker in there, and it's quieter. And knowing I was having to get up again on, like, four hours of sleep, I went, you know, four or five hours of sleep. I go, I don't, I don't want to do that because if I go into that room – Next thing you know, it's not going to work out. Because we got Chris Mullen today. So I probably could have said that earlier, but it isn't a radio show. As we know, you've already downloaded this and you've seen that it's titled Chris Mullen. So I didn't want to, I didn't want anything to happen with Chris Mullen where it wasn't going to work out. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, do you think Chris Mullen probably, probably, yes, makes his bed every day? Who do you think Will Kane makes his bed every day? Yeah, probably. He probably makes his sons do it too. It's like a discipline thing. Yeah, but they do a, th- it's like a, team building it's like a team cane building yep. exercise One of my favorite things about will is that like i always joke I, he's the he's like the self-help guy like he'll read a book and then it'll change his life like he, he always wants to be the best version of himself so i constantly make fun of him about that and making your bed i feel like is the number one rule of guys like will kane you know like you gotta if you're not a man unless you make your bed every morning yeah i can see that i mean i i think guys that can read self-help books uh self-help books and and finish them and not just see him in an airport or walking, you know, like the reason those things keep selling, like how many possible ways could somebody write like, hey, get your bleep together, you know? But we, as a society, like whatever it is, however we're wired, we buy those things. I think I could write one. I would love to, I would love for you to write one. I've thought about it. I've thought about writing like a real guide to be like, hey, this is... This is actually how everything really works. And this is what you're going to have to understand early on. And, um, you know, nobody really likes you. Most people, <laughs> most people aren't going to try to help. And if you're actually really good at something specific, um, or you want to do something that's, that's not mainstream, more people are going to tell you not to do it. And it has nothing to do with you. It has more to do with them. Uh, find a couple people that you can trust, hopefully. Yeah, no, I got Bleak. it. I got, yeah, I got it in my head. I mean, if this isn't going to be some Pollyanna stuff, I'm writing. Okay, this isn't going to be. This isn't going to be talking about like the inner you unleashing the great you. It's going to be here. Here's here's the stuff you're going to have to navigate the next ten years. I wish I had. That. I wish I read that out of college. Yeah, this is a twenty something self help book, and there might be a chapter in there that it's like, look, if you're thirty five. And things, party. <laughs> and things aren't really working out. Here's how we're going to try to get you back on track. <laughs> and then I would throw in some stories. I've outlined it. I have great outlined idea. it. I'm, I'm not even joking. This is a great idea. No, I mean, look, I've, you know me well enough to know that I've, if I've thought about this and I'm even talking about it now, like I have really thought about it. I've, I've outlined it. I've actually written, I wrote like an opening chapter 
to try to just give you like, okay, this is what happened when I decided I wanted to get into this industry and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, it's a no-brainer, but when you're sitting there trying to write scripts every week to go, hey, I'll take a break from this and I'll work on the book, like, hey, you know, who am I? Who am I pretending I, I you know, I'm not, uh, I'm trying to think of somebody who writes a million books. Is Gladwell, would you say Gladwell? Yeah. I feel like he's slowing down a little bit. Though. Well, yeah, now he is, but <laughs> for a while there, he's pumping him out. Yeah, pumping him out. Who is it? John Maxwell? That's a good one. Right. That guy, that guy, that guy's great. Cause you just kind of come up with one idea. It sells and maybe like a second one and business and all these things. And the next thing you know, the publishers are just like, Hey dude, we just got to put your name on it and we'll put a small blue cover and just change the title around. And it's like how to, how to make decisions when decisions need to be made. Volume four and. You're good to go. Have you read any of those, Surdy? No, but I was gonna. I was thinking. I mean, Cowherd's been cranking out some books. Maybe you could talk to him. Um, has he? He wrote two really quickly, <laughs> and then that was it. I, I'm not like. I think it's really cool to be able to say, I wrote a book, and there it is in the bookshop. You know, to walk right in. I'm gonna be incredible, but I don't. It's not. It's not the top priority. And knowing me, it would be some editor would go, this is so real and good that we don't want to publish it. I'd be like, all right, cool. Sounds good. I'm really excited to talk to Chris Mullen. We're going to do some stuff on St. John's. You guys know I grew up a St. John's fan and I've been really excited about their season. Uh, so we've been working that out. So we're going to talk with him. I want to do some stuff on his background and all that stuff. But I also do want to talk about the NFL coaches and the hiring and you know some of the stuff over there where I already know what I'm going to get with some of the opinion people and you know I I think that's just something I really want to dig into and do because I knew this was coming and I, and I said it I don't know if people remember or not but I said it what the second month of the NFL season or and even looking at stuff I was like if, if Cliff Kingsbury were ever fired like NFL teams are going to want him and even though I'm more of an NBA guy I do talk to enough NFL people that it's it's just it was so obvious what was coming that after McVeigh and Goff looking as terrible as Goff looked in his first year, that everybody was just trying to figure out their next quarterback whisperer. That's that's all that they were going to do. And so it's happening. Kingsbury gets the gig, and basically all these other hires, except for a couple, are all about the offense and the quarterback. So I do want to get into some of that. And then James Harden and the night that he had against Milwaukee, because there was something that happened from that that was interesting and got a lot of people talking about it. Hey, before we get to Chris Mullen, I want to tell you about loans. Applying for a loan is a lot like applying for a job that you don't get to interview for. Instead, loan companies make their decisions based off your credit score and history without getting to know the whole you. Now, thanks Upstart.com, it never has to be that way again. Upstart is revolutionizing the way you borrow money by rewarding you for your job experience and education in the form of a small smarter interest rate. So basically, think about that. Like, hey, this Rosillo guy, he sounds like a real winner. Look at his look at his job. All right, so maybe I wouldn't have killed it on this immediately. But anyway, unlike traditional credit underwriting, which could be biased against people with short credit history, Upstart goes beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your credit worthiness. This is actually really good because part of the whole deal is, hey, get a credit card so I can get some sort of credit history so that eventually I can have some sort of loan. Upstart's helping you try to get around all that or jump the whole line. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They make it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate in less than two minutes without affecting your credit score. That's another bonus. The best part, once your loan is approved, the funds will be transferred to you the very next business day, the next day, over 
100,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards, student loans, fund their wedding, or to make a large purchase. Free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. Here's the deal. Go to upstart.com slash Russillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O, to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes two minutes and won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash Russillo. He's the head coach of the number 24 team in the country, 14-2, and two, the St. John's Red Storm, and uh, Hall of Famer as well, Chris Mullen. What's up, man? How are you? Brian, how are you, man? How's everything going? Good, good. It's uh, it's cool being out here on the West Coast, though, but it's uh, I still kind of miss the East Coast a little bit, which I didn't think was going to happen, but you know how it is. I'm, I'm sure you probably feel the same way a little bit. Yeah, um, not, not these months, though. You missed it maybe in the summertime, but right now you're probably in the right place. <laughs> well, I miss... I miss uh, Having the Johnnies on in the afternoon, it's, it's weird when I'm like, okay, it's 9 a.m., so I got to make sure I'm ready to go. And this season has gone great. And I'm wondering in the beginning of this whole thing, the way the, the coaching job has changed, the way the Big East has changed, like how did it start from going from front office to St. John saying, hey, come back and be the head coach of your alma mater? How did it start? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously being involved almost in every facet of the game, uh, coaching was the one thing I hadn't done. And I always, you know, I was, you know, whether I was GM, you and I used to talk all the time up in Bristol. You know, even when you're playing, there's always a coaching aspect to the way you look at the game. Um, so that was one thing I always, in, in the back of my mind, I thought I would do if the right situation came about. I had been, in the previous years, I've talked to different uh, NBA teams about it. The, the, the timing and the situation wasn't right. Um, so lo and behold, so, you know, I was 52 and. It was kind of something on my mind. I had started, you know, researching stuff in my garage, different coaches I played for. I had all the playbooks in my garage. I started putting together some things. I actually spoke to Jeff Van Gundy one time uh, about if I did get into it. He said, you should start just jotting down your thoughts to put, put together what you would, you know, what you would do with a team. Uh, I started doing that. And then the uh, the call came. And I was somewhat prepared, uh, you know, a few months before. And I jumped on it. You know, it was a place where, obviously, you know, I haven't gone to St. John's, and I have a lot, a lot of friends there, like great memories. So it was a unique situation that I jumped in. What surprised you about yourself now four years in as a coach? Um, well, you know what? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. I think a lot of things that I, that I was taught uh, by previous coaches um, at, at all levels, my high school coach, Jack Alisi, uh, obviously my college coach, Luke Conaseca, on to the NBA, Nelly, and Larry Bird and all these different people that have influence on my my basketball career. Those experiences have taught me. Um, I'm not, not saying I saw everything, but things that pop up for the most part, I you know I can uh, kind of relate to a past experience. Um, so the thing is, it takes a little. You know, it's like when I went to the GM job, just being a step or two away. That's probably two steps away. I, I thought it'd be nice and easy. You sit in the box and watch the game, but it's really nerve wracking watching the team that you put together. And then when the game starts, you have no control at all what's going on. You sit there and kind of just watch. It's pretty nerve wracking. I find coaching similar, but but a step closer. So you have a little bit more influence. You're obviously a little bit more closer and into the game, but yet you still have to let the players do their thing, uh, which I like. I think I think we need more of that in college basketball, letting the players play and, and dictate outcomes and things like that. But uh, I do. I love the preparation. I love the practice. I love the skill development. And at the college level, you really see these kids change 
you know, month by month, which is pretty cool. When you think about the first three years, I'm sure like, you know, hey, you, you had, for those that don't understand, like you'd have all these different pieces. You had, like, it was like the United Nations one, one year with the roster where you were just trying to figure it out. Like, where can we find players? And it, it probably didn't go the way you'd want record wise. But now that you've started off this way, and I know, like, I would watch some of the interviews and I'd read some of the stuff from like the New York papers and you'd just be like, Hey, look, we're winning games now. So yes, we could be better. We could close. We could have a tougher non-conference, but like, we're finally winning games. What has that been like for you after probably three years as a competitor being really frustrated? Yeah. Well, again, you have to have a, an open mind and, and a realistic mind, right? Of what you're walking into. So I think if you look at our, our first-year team, I think we had the least amount of minutes and points returning in the history of college basketball. I do think that's a fact. So going into that season, even I could figure out it was going to be a tough year. So um, that's really when we that, that's really where all the work is, to be able to go each and every day uh, and start establishing that you're going to work every day, regardless of the score, regardless of the outcome. Um, and what are you going to do the next day? So that that's real. So I was I was all set for that. I, I've been through that several times. <laughs> you know, you know the Warriors weren't always the Warriors that they are today, and, and all teams, you know, the NBA teams, NFL, it's cyclical. So it depends when you step in there, and a lot of times those jobs open up because you know things are need need, need to be turned around. Um, so I was prepared for it. Doesn't mean it wasn't hard, wasn't frustrating, um, but again, experience. Helped me in that in that regard, uh, and lo and behold, the progress uh, has been consistent. Uh, it's gotten us to the point we are where we are now. But the thing that does not change and will not change is our daily approach. You know, and that's again, that's something I was taught. I was taught that uh, first and foremost in high school by my high school coach. You're going to get what you put in each and every day. And it may not come right away, but if you're resilient. And, and you put an honest day's work in, and you keep doing that day by day, good things will happen. So, um, yeah, I was prepared for it. Did I like it? No. But I, I knew that was part of the process. I always tell I tell our guys all the time, don't underestimate what it means to be good. That's disrespectful. You know, so that's individually, that's as a team, that's as a coach, whatever profession you're in, the guys that are really good, they put their time in. What's it like knowing, you know, the, the history of this league – you win at Georgetown for the first time since 2003, which seems impossible when I had read that after the overtime <laughs> win this past weekend. Yeah. But you're looking at Patrick Ewing and <laughs> the battles that you guys had in the 80s and then to think, here we are 30 years later looking at each other, coaching. Our, did you have any discussion about how great it is, but just how life takes these these paths where you would still be sitting there on the sideline looking at each other? Yeah, well, Ryan, that's one of the beautiful things that also um, that's happened is, you know, like you said, you know, coaching against Patrick is surreal. It's pretty incredible. We, we talked about before the game. I talked to Patrick before he took the job at Georgetown. Um, all our what did he, experience. What did he ask you about it? What did he ask you about coming back well, and trying to do Because he's doing, doing the same thing. His, yeah, his, obviously his biggest concern, what's, what's the deal between the difference between the NBA and college? Um, and, and to me... And I, I, I think people have different uh, feelings on this. Over the over time, it's become less of a less of a change. You know, we have some, obviously some rule changes, some stuff on the court that are different. But if you're in the NBA and, and you're picking in the draft, you're getting you're getting our guys. You're getting you know my teams. We my team right now. We have kids. All our guys are older than some of those draft picks. Most of the draft picks. 
So as the, as the NBA has gotten younger, I think it's become more like college. If you look at the NBA practice with, with the first-round draft picks, they're doing skill development. They're, they're doing all the fundamentals that they haven't picked up because they, they kind of short-tracked and, and mm-hmm. uh, fast-tracked through the, through the system. Um, so over time, it's become, I think, closer to the NBA. Um, so I, I kind of shared my thoughts on, on, on my first year, which at that point wasn't that good. But I still, I, you know, but I love, I love everything about college basketball. I always have. Um, and then to have, to be able to do that off schools, I think is unique. I'm not quite sure Patrick would have went anywhere else but Georgetown. I know I would talk coach anywhere but St. John's. Um, but, but, you know, the, the original question is just, it is surreal. You know, there's no way if you asked me, you know, six years ago, would that happen? I'd be like, no way in the world. I'll be coaching college basketball at St. John's and, you know, coaching against Georgetown with Patrick Ewing. So it's really, it's kind of really cool. Um, we're both enjoying it. You know, we, we, we chat, we text here and there, um, share our experiences. But it's, it's really, it's a time warp. And like I said, when I come to games at St. John's, I'm seeing people that used to come to my games, you know, as students. And, and we just, you know, look, I look across the court. It's like, it's like the twilight zone sometimes. Do guys like Shamori and, you know, your, your dudes on this team, do they know about you in the pros? I mean, do they watch run TMC videos on YouTube? Do they ask you about like I'm sure they ask you about being in the NBA because they all want to be in the league, but do they know? Well, I think you know, you know, Mitch Richmond's with me, so we've got two two out of three with us. Tim Hardaway, Junior, and Senior came to the game last week. Uh, we've had the Warriors practice at St. John's twice out of three uh, out of the last three years. Yeah, so you know they have access to their phone. One one thing they're good at they're good at using their phones and Google and things. So they they get they get the info. Um, more importantly, if they do, if they really want to know, they, they, they just get in a shooting game with me and Mitch and let them know what's, what's up right now. Never mind what happened 30 years ago. Did you and Mitch beat everybody on the team in a recent shooting video that I saw? Or was it just you two shooting around? Because I saw the video no, of you just, and Mitch. That was just us messing around, but yeah, we'll take on anybody anytime, any level. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Did you... As, as long as it stands still. As long as we're not. Yeah, it was stance. So, what did you did you hit? What eighteen or twenty? We, you know what? That was the, we were at Georgetown before uh, before practice, and um, Mitch was feeling good. He, he got somebody to get their phone. I said, "Dude, stop! Stop putting things on social media. This is for this is for me and you. So when I whoop you, I just have it in my own little in the back <laughs> of my mind. I don't need I don't need Twitter or Instagram to to justify that I can outshoot." Yeah, well, I did see the video, and you did win. Um, for for your background, and you know, I, one of my favorite things about ESPN, and I, you know, I eventually become numb to it. But I mean, you know how I I felt about you as a player, and just going to these Big East games and and watching you hang with everybody else. And it was you know this thing where I you know I turned to my dad, and I was like, "How come he's so good? Like, what's going on?" And my dad was like, "He could shoot. He's good. He's 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 from the city, you know." And mm-hmm. What was it? What was it like for you? You know, being a um, a Brooklyn kid, and then you know you went up to power, and then you transferred. Uh, I imagine to be closer to home to Zverian. But like, at what point of your journey in the city as as a hoops player, finding these games, and, and I'm sure many times being the only white kid, like, what was that like for you? Is that journey of developing your game and, and getting the respect in a city where basketball is everything? Yeah, Ryan, I think. I, I kind of referenced it before about going through the process, not fast tracking. So to me, that was 
that was really the process of proving to myself, um, gaining respect, gaining confidence in different areas, right? Just first starting in my in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, right? Just playing against my friends and CYO and just, you know, being pretty good. And, you know, I went to Town Memorial, which is up on 61st in Amsterdam, um, a totally different, diverse dynamic for me, right? So I'm up in, in you know, midtown Manhattan, just above Hell's Kitchen, and now the school I'm at is probably a third white, a third black, and, and a third everything. So it's just the, the most diverse school, which was a great education itself. I got to meet new friends from different backgrounds and different family makeup. But I also was introduced to guys who were playing at this AU, AAU program called Riverside Church, which is up on 125th and Broadway. I don't know, Ellie, uh, a buddy of mine, Jesse Fong, were playing there. They brought me up to the gym there. And that, that was how I first really got introduced to playing up in Harlem, was playing for Riverside Church. Um, then through that program, I went out to play with Eddie Pickney, uh, Pearl Washington, Mark Jackson, Kenny Smith, Walter Berry, just the, the names go on and on. But during the summer, we would just play. We'd play two, three games a day. At, you know, everything was mostly outside then in the parks, just these different leagues. Um, and he said, yeah, a lot of times I was the only white guy in the park. Uh, did I feel pressure? Not really. I felt the pressure to, to prove myself, you know, and, and then as I did it game by game and, and day by day, I felt more confident. So, you know, so you go out outside your comfort zone to compete. And when you do well, you're like, yeah, I can do this. And that was really the process for me all throughout my whole career. You know, when I went to St. John's, I wasn't quite sure I was at that level. You know, I was told I was. I was recruited there, so they thought I was, but I didn't know. Um, I referenced a game. We played uh, my first game against Georgetown. We were down four and nine at halftime. And I, zero, I think I was zero for six. I was in the back, of, not in the front of my mind, not the back of my mind, saying, man, I might have went to too big a school. I don't know if I can do this. But Coach Conasecca reinforced me, what are you going to do the next day? So all that, all that stuff is, you know, experiences that you look back on. Uh, but to me, it's the process of, of climbing the ladder. And these days, um, sometimes that's fast track. I think they're missing out on a you know, beautiful experience, um, meeting friends, you know, dealing with adversity at a young age. So when you get older, it's not the first time you're dealing with things. Okay, coming up after this, more with Chris Mullen. How much did you and Georgetown truly hate each other, though? Like, what's your best Georgetown story when you guys are getting together talking about you know how how difficult it was first of all to beat them. Um, you know, unfortunately, that great year you had as a team, and and Georgetown got you a bunch of times that year when it you know you were yeah. one seed. Um, what's the one that you always think about? The one you got the story you have the most fun telling to people. Well, probably 1983. We played. They had whooped us my freshman year, I think, each and every time, I believe. Um, and then we played them at the Garden. My sophomore year, they got up on us, and then we had this really tough guard, Kevin Williams, who, who never started a game at St. John's and played eight years in the NBA. Really, really tough kid, talented, athletic. And he came off the bench. I think we're down 11-3 and, um, you know, went down to double Patrick. Patrick came with high elbows. They both just started throwing blows. And the fact that Kevin just stood up and, you know, I think they both connected. There was no technical fouls and we just kept playing. But it kind of made a statement like, now we're holding our ground now. We had enough. Um, so that, that was a that was kind of a turning point. Um, but I always say the, the thing with Georgetown, they were just so good. They were they were a great 
somewhat almost a dynasty. I think they went to the Final Four three out of four years when Patrick was there. Yeah. They were on the, like, like kind of a dynasty type of team. So that that naturally brought out the, the hatred. Um, and I, I, I'd like to say a healthy hatred because it was respect and it was, it was a hatred through competition. So it wasn't, you know, you, you didn't hate the people. We just hated the team. Um, and that's one thing you talk about about 35 years later. So here I am, you know, shaking Patrick's hand, hugging each other, even like before, you know, we would never do that when we played. I even, you know, John Thompson Sr., I see him all the time now. We have nice, you know, laughs. So that's kind of kind of funny how things change over time. But there was really a, a legitimate um, focus, no shaking hands. We didn't really look at each other. I, never, I didn't talk to Patrick, really, until 1992. Even when we played together in 84 Olympic team, we really didn't speak a whole lot because in the back of our minds, we were going to play each other in a few months. So there, there was, we really didn't put our guard down too much. So was the transition to the NBA easier for you as, as a top pick and established out of St. John's with all these awards than maybe going to the Big East then? I mean, you know, I know it wasn't right away for you, but, you know, eventually it, it works out in the NBA. I'm just wondering, like, was that, was the transition to college maybe the one where you had a harder struggle than actually going into the NBA? No, it was tougher for me. The NBA, Ryan, it's funny because, and, and, and you know, you was probably a young little kid then. Uh, when were you born? I was born in Hartford. No, when? Oh, in 75. Okay, so, okay, yeah, so, so 85, the NBA was not what it is today. <laughs> so, when I left, when I left St. John's, you know, we was like, you know, we went to Georgetown and the Big East. We are playing at the Garden with 19,000. I went out to Oakland, my first game, I think there was 5,000 people in the arena. <laughs> so I felt, I felt like I downgraded. I got to be back at St. John's. What is this? So um, that plus, you know, some, some of my personal problems that I had to deal with, the transition was much tougher, um, but long-term, much more gratifying, uh, and probably most importantly, on and off the court. Um, so, it was, again, another uh, thing that I can look back on that I had to deal with uh, personally. Um, yeah, so, again, the, that transition was much tougher going to the NBA uh, in college, uh, partly being away from home. Uh, and in a weird way, the, things were so good. My four years at college, I probably would have, if I had a choice, would have stayed another four years at St. John's. No, that's a really good point because I'll, I'll see that with like SEC kids and, you know, bigger programs too, Clemson, Florida State, Texas, and then they get to the pros and they go, you know, this, you know, the guys we end up working with or, or, they come up to visit at ESPN and they'd go, I, you know, the, the idea of Sunday pressure, like, yeah, physically it's different, but, um, sometimes it's a bit of a letdown. And yeah. you're right, because that Warriors team, it was, it was sort of a novelty. It wasn't like you were knocking everybody off. Uh, you beat that jazz team in the playoffs once you guys got things rolling. But mm-hmm. what, what was it about, you know, once Tim was there and you had Mitch and you had Don Nelson running this thing? Like, what was the best part of the freedom of that kind of basketball that actually I think is more embraced today than it ever was back then? Yeah, to me, the, the, looking back, Ryan, the, 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 the most fun was, was learning a different style and really going into each and every game. Each, each and every practice, Nelly made it fun. He made the game fun. He would, we, uh, no practice was the same. Some days we played three on three. Some days we you know, play bigs versus smalls. Um, 
always had fun shooting games, and it just he just really made the game fun again for me. Uh, and obviously, when when uh, and Tim joined, just their their young um, energy for the game, and, and obviously their incredible talent. Um, and like you said, the, the way the game's played now, we were trying to do that thirty years ago, and had had some success. But quite frankly, um, and, and I hear a lot of times when you know, I watch NBA TV. Just think of the players. If you're going to switch a point guard on Kevin McHale or, or a small forward, say that's not going to happen, you know. So uh, these days, with, with, with the three-point shot being so prominent at, at every position, you can get away with switching a little bit easier than you used to. You know, it probably wasn't a good idea to, you know, have your small forward guard and Patrick Ewing or David Robinson or Kim Olajuwon in the post. Um, so. Like you said, that, that that style of play is is flourishing now. I love to watch it, but it was it was it was a different style, a different uh, talent base back then. Were you and Manute Bowl really that close of friends? You got like you yeah. guys were buddies, right? Yeah, we got we got. Well, you know what's funny? A lot of people, we, I knew Manute. Uh, he was actually how I met him. My my younger brother John played with him at the University of Bridgeport, so they 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 were they were teammates. No way! Um, that Bridgeport yeah, so, team, yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I met I met Manute before he got into the pros, and the funny thing is, so my brother John uh, played with him, and, he, and I was um, I was that thing. He kept telling me I had the seven foot seven guy. I'm like, come on, man, there's no no one seven seven running around playing college basketball. <laughs> so lo, lo and behold, he brought him down to a St. John's game on campus, which is about a six thousand seat arena, and. It, they got there a little late. The game's going on, and Manute walks in with my brother John, and the whole stadium just turns around during the game and just staring at him. Not even watching the game, they can't believe what they're seeing. So I got to know Manute early, you know, before his uh, pro days, and then ironically, he got traded to to the Warriors. So I have known him ahead of time. We, we became really, really close friends. We lived by each other in uh, Alameda when, when we were playing for the Warriors. Um, yeah, we had a great relationship. I miss him dearly. Um, but, you know, I know his son, Chris, I'm very close with. And then, uh, obviously, Bobo uh, just had his surgery. But uh, I tell you, it's amazing. You talk about how time flies and different things happen. Bobo not only looks like me, has very, a lot of characteristics that, that his dad had in a good way. Just a nice young man, and he's going to have a great NBA career. Yeah, and he's up at uh, Oregon, and you're right. He, he just yeah. had that that foot injury. But you're right. Like when I watch him play, I see facial expressions that remind me. No, of, no, uh, you, right, right on, Ryan. He's got facial expressions. Yeah, it's crazy. The, the look, the looks he gives the rest, and sometimes teammates, yeah. it's just uncanny. I'm like that's minute. Right there. It's unbelievable. I have always, um, you know, thought this about you, but it, it just seems like everybody that played really liked you. Um, in that 92 Dream Team, and there's been a, a ton done on it, but every dude, like every guy that I ever run into that was connected with that stuff, they always, they're always huge Chris Mullen fans. Um, why do you think that is? Well, first of all, I don't know if that's true or not, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I would say this, as far as all the teams I've been a part of, and this goes way back to grade school, I always appreciated, first of all, being on a team. It was like, you know, Going back to when I was at St. Thomas Aquinas in Brooklyn, getting my uniform was a big day for me. Like, that was cool. Like, so I always appreciate just playing the game of basketball. I loved it. I had fun with it. Um, my teammates, 
I think part is I, I, I needed my teammates to succeed. I wasn't, you know, the most athletic and most gifted. So I always, you know, became close with my teammates. I just did. I thought it was, that's the way I was taught. Your teammates are, you know, that you have to get along, you have to play together. Um, and I think just the joy of playing. Any team I was on, I tried to, tried to have fun with it. Um, I really enjoyed practice. I think, I think that's why I became close with guys, staying after practice in the early, you know, spending the off season together, training. Um, yeah, so I don't like I said, I don't know if that's, I, I'm sure, you know, there's some people that don't, don't feel that way, but I, I just love the game of basketball. I, I always enjoy playing, no matter what the situation was. I tried, I really haven't, I, I, even now, like, so I've been involved for so many years. I don't have that. You know, you find some athletes, they, they, they become bitter or they feel left out. I feel like I've been blessed. And no matter what, whatever it's been, I've, I've had fun with it. What's, um, what's your favorite story from, from the 92 team? Whether it's off the court, on the, is it the Brazil game? Because you went off in that one. But um... Yeah, but you know, it's, it's funny, Ryan. The games become somewhat of a blur to me over time, right? I'll, I'll see them here and there, and I tell you, I remember that. But really, I mean, the thing is, is getting to know those players, man. Like this past, just this past uh, October, we had our, our opening men's banquet, right? The men's basketball banquet. David Robinson came back to speak. To me, that's a blessing, dude. David Robinson is one of the most, to me, revered, respected players of all time. On and off the court. The guy's just dynamic. He's the admiral. To have him come, I called him. He said, I'll be there, man. I mean, that to me is a blessing, dude. To have be able to play for Larry Bird, right, at the, at the Pacers. After I played with him in the 92 Olympic team, uh, Magic, the, the impact he's had on, on the world, really, they play against him with him, right, and become friends with him. So to me, I look back, John Stockton, Palmer, all these guys that really hanging around the hotel and getting to meet, meet them um, and now bumping into their kids, right? David Robinson's got two, two of his boys living in the city. They, they've come to our games now. So that, to me, is really what I cherish and when I look back and just think about, you know, we'll bump, I'll bump into Clyde Drexler. Remember that day we, you know, we went out with Lenny Wilkes they were playing tennis in, uh, in Monaco. Things like that really uh, stick in my mind more than the, you know, the games. Yeah, that was, um, I've read the, the Jack McCallum book on it, you know, it was, was great. And I know we did a big thing at ESPN on the whole deal. And I've talked to Charles, I've talked to Magic, I've talked to Clyde about it. And I mean, here I am, like now I'm just writing that off like it's not a big thing. And, and it's actually an incredible honor, um, to get to talk to so many dudes about that. But hey, it's, uh, something that's made, you know, St. John's probably the only team I still emotionally care about the outcomes, which is kind of cool because I don't really care about, um, that many things that much anymore when you work in this this long. But I'm just really, really proud of you and proud of uh, what you've done with this school and, and this program. And I can't wait to come back east and catch a game, man. So thanks so much for your time, Chris. I really, my, really always appreciate it. My pleasure, Ryan. Always a pleasure, man. See you soon. Okay, I have more on the NFL that I want to do and a little bit on James Harden. But before we do that and finish up today's pod, we all put off doing things we know we need to do. I know, you know, look, we got to organize the garage or I'm trying to figure out if I want to apply for this Jetpack Racing League, but I know I'm going to put it off until it's too late and all the slots are taken up. But something always gets in the way. Funny how home security can be like that. You know it's a good idea, but there's always something holding you back. Well, now is the time to act to protect your home with Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe believes nothing should come between you and protecting your home, so they've gotten rid of the reasons not to get home security. There's no contract, okay, ever. No price markups from any middleman. And no installation windows, okay? So 
You don't have to sit around all day going, hey, you guys going to come do this? Most importantly, their system is engineered to do one thing brilliantly, protect. So if a storm takes out your power, Simply Safe is ready. If an intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready. If they destroy your keypad or siren, Simply Safe will get you the help you need. Maybe it's overkill. Maybe it's the last thing you want to think about when you're making so many other changes and other resolutions. But with Simply Safe, you're always ready for anything. And just think about it. If you said, hey, you know what I did? You didn't have to bother me, dear loved one. I got Simply Safe. And I didn't even need to have you buy. Rosillo told me to get it and done. And now you're a winner at home. So. To get a jump on protecting your home at simplysafe.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. No time like the present, right? That's simplysafe.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N, to protect your home and family today with Simply Safe. Simplysafe.com slash Ryan. I want to talk a bit about the coaching stuff that's gone on in the NFL because there's a bunch of just directions on this. And as I alluded to in the beginning of the podcast, you knew that this was coming. Okay, the McVeigh thing is real. And it's real because not only has he turned golf into something that looks pretty good, despite, you know, look, the end of the season, um, it wasn't as good. But let's, let's just do this. Jared Goff looks like an entirely different guy than he was that rookie year where you're going, man, you traded up for this dude. And what were the stories that we'd heard? We'd heard that the Rams wanted to kind of have a guy that they could build around that wasn't a running back in Todd Gurley or a defensive lineman in Aaron Donald. They wanted the quarterback. They wanted to be able to advertise we're coming to LA. And of course, what else did we hear? The Hugh Jackson rule, which is the everybody rule, is that Jeff Fisher secretly kind of liked Carson Wentz a little bit better because guess what? Carson Wentz was almost an MVP before he got hurt two years ago okay so when that stuff keeps coming out and golf doesn't look good it's like oh, i always kind of wanted Wentz anyway but you know the the owners and the the marketing people they all got involved and they wanted jared golf and that was the story going around forever from so many different people about golf mcveigh shows up and golf looks terrific now two plus seasons so if you're an owner and you've just drafted a quarterback and we just drafted a bunch of them and a few of them have to be on teams the coaches got fired you're going to watch Rams Chiefs. You're going to watch what's going on with Baker Mayfield. You're going to think, wait a minute, that Kingsbury guy? Like, I don't care. He didn't get anybody to Lubbock. They didn't play defense. The quarterbacks lit it up. And look at all these guys that he's worked with that are really good. There's like five or six pros. I'll go get that guy. So everybody can make the Kingsbury sucked at Texas Tech jokes, and now he went from a fired Big 12 head coach to now an NFL head coach. But, I mean, are you looking for the punchline or are you looking for understanding? Because I'm always looking for understanding, even if I can admire a good punchline. The Freddie Kitchens deal, okay, we just spent the number one pick on Baker. He hated the other guys. He really likes Kitchens. Done. It's over. Adam Gase was McVeigh, okay? Adam Gase was the new hot commodity, the guy that was going to figure out your offense. And it didn't really work out. Even though Tannehill, I'll tell you, if you go back and look at some of the Tannehill seasons, the numbers are better than you're going to expect them to be. And they are misleading. You know, it's, again, that rule of Tannehill. Like, I know what the numbers are, but I also watched some of those games to know that I was never, ever scared of that guy. But the numbers are better than you think. And with Sam Darnold in place, and I don't know if Mike McCarthy was going to get it. You know, the Matt Rule thing is always kind of funny at Baylor, and I'm not knocking Rule because I know how the game is played, but the head coach that says, I'm not going anywhere. And you're like, well, you didn't take the Jets job because they wanted you to take a different D coordinator than the guy you want, and then you went back to Baylor, all right? So relax, you know, Captain Waco. So the Darnold hire makes sense. The Kitchens hire makes sense. The Kingsbury hire, even if we want to make fun of it, I think it makes sense. I mean, it's why I had said months ago that stuff like this was going to start happening. So if you're an owner, what are you supposed to do 
when we all would sit here and agree that the quarterback is the most important thing on your team. And now there's this window with Matt Nagy and some of these other things that have happened where, and I'm not even sure if it's true yet, but the, the, the theory of, wait, can I just get one of these really smart quarterback guys in here and then we can just put up points and sort of be competitive? And now we've raised, if the quarterback tied what is a, was at a certain level for decades, it's not so much do I have a top 10 guy or a top 15 guy, but can I live with somebody who's a top 20 guy now and still compete? Is Mitch Trubisky really good? Or have we raised the floor? Not the ceiling is the roof, but have we raised the floor of what the lowest level quarterback play is? And have we raised that floor by prioritizing the position like never before? And that's really all that's happening. And, you know, it's why LaFleur is in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers, where it's easy to make the Matt LaFleur jokes and go, oh, Tennessee. Like, I can't stand what Nobody dislikes Tennessee in that window of like, oh, Tennessee's on again. I'm like, oh, great. I've never been afraid of Tennessee, ever. Despite sometimes you'd be like, hey, are they good? Is their defense good or what's going on? I don't think Mariota's going to do it. But imagine this. Imagine... I'll just do my own my own career here, uh, and it's not specific to me. But like, say I worked in, um, you know, I don't want to make fun of any markets here. Let's just say I worked in a really small market, okay? And we had no marketing. There was another station that was a dominant station, and I was younger because that's actually what happened to me in Boston. But it was a great market, so I'm I'm not going to do that. And somebody said to me like, "Hey, we're interested in hiring you as a talk show host, but you got absolutely zero numbers." Now we can all do the cool thing that we think is like, oh, no, no excuse, no one to blame but myself. I'd be like, all right, well, look, our signal sucked. Um, we had no marketing team. I was a fill in because they got rid of the big money guy. Actually, some of these things are kind of similar. And so say any ESPN wanted to hire me, would they go, Hey, we like him in the room and we like the tape and we like how he sounds, but he didn't get any ratings? Okay, well, let's dig in. Let's dig in. What was it? Did he suck? Was he in the market for 10 years and could never get a number? That would be a problem. Oh, he was there two years? No one even no one even listened to this guy. Okay, well, let's give him a shot here. And I think that that happens in everything. And that's even happening in the NFL. So you can just sit there and look at Tennessee's offensive rankings. You can make fun of him. You can say, oh, it took him forever to figure out Derrick Henry. And maybe all of those things are right. I'm at least open-minded to the idea that this is kind of the way this thing is going. And unfortunately, when we start talking about race and the available black coordinators that are quarterback gurus, there just aren't many of them. So then it gets to the NFL where it's like, do we blame the 32 NFL owners for not hiring more black head coaches? Because there is truth to the black guy not getting the second chance as the coordinator as much as the white guy. I mean, that stuff's really to like. There's some, some things that I think are overboard race accusations. You know me well enough that I don't, I don't, I resist some of it, but there's other stuff that can't be resisted and you go, okay, we need to figure this thing out. But is it the NFL's fault that at the earliest stages of development for football, the white kids are playing quarterback and maybe, I mean, maybe it just happens where like the best athletes, shockingly enough, I mean, I'm, I'm being sarcastic here, like, cause any of us that played pros, excuse me, not pro sports, you sports. And you're like, okay, this kid's the most athletic and, you know, let's put him. At safety, let's put him at corner because it's harder. And now here's the thing. Maybe all this stuff is evolving. Maybe the Kyler Murray, these different things that we're seeing here, that you know, it will eventually start to evolve and work itself out. But it's not really the NFL's fault that at the youth levels, the quarterback specialty guys 
seem to be white because the position is white. Because you grow up playing the position, you play the position longer. Like, that's the root of the problem of not having more black NFL head coaches, especially in the span of weeks where it's so obvious what this league is trying to do, what they're hoping to do with each and every hire. So there can be racial components. There can be race issues. There are things that are flat-out wrong. But if you just go up, look at all these white head coaches. The NFL is a bunch of racists. This sucks. That, to me, is a bit dramatic. And it's a bit like, you know, I'm not even going to mention it because he's a guy, he's an anchor, he's in a major market, and he does these super woe-is-me, woke, everything-sucks videos, and he does one every few years, and he's good at doing the videos, and for the most part, a lot of what he says is incredibly wrong. So I'm not even going to mention it because he had one that he did years and years ago where he was so wrong the entire time that I'm not even going to give him the benefit of the doubt even bring it up anymore. So that's really all I have on that. Listen, I'm with you on all this stuff. And I, at, the end, at the end of the day, like, you know. Is that a problem? Are we just. Are I we don't know. Worried? I mean, I, well, I am with you. I mean, I, I listen, I don't think it's the NFL's problem. Um, or It's not their fault, I should say, that it's a bunch of white offensive. Court. Like, this is just the way the, the league has gone. And, you know, I think in time that'll fix itself. I think that that's just how things work. As as more black quarterbacks start playing, as as years go by, there's going to be more opportunity for guys. It's just the way it is. Like it's just the way, like sort of like the league and college football have sort of been. And I think that will change. But I mean, I'm interested if I'm if I'm a Cardinals fan, like I'm kind of interested in this whole Kingsbury thing. And I and r- rumors are he's going to try to bring in Vance Joseph as a defensive guy. He's not even going to be worried about the defense. So that's not even going to be a problem. It's his job. He's essentially a head coach whose job is an offensive coordinator and to develop Josh Rosen or Kyle, Kyle, Kyler uh, Murray or whoever they bring in. That's his job. And I'm okay with that. And it, it, it could fail miserably, but it doesn't mean it wasn't worth, you know, swinging for the fences. And I just think, you know, if you, would you rather have Cliff Kingsbury or Steve Wilkes next year? I'd, I'd rather have Cliff Kingsbury knowing it could be a massive failure. Right, because I just saw what it was with Steve Wilkes for a year. And I'm somebody that has said this whole time, like, I really liked Rosen, and it was so bad. And whatever it was, it wasn't working. So you can sit there, and I guess you can do the right thing, which is what? Keep Steve Wilkes around for another year because you're afraid of being criticized? And this is another thing I had called when I would heard about all the different coaches are going to get fired. I go, this is going to be bad because it's going to be like four black coaches, and this is going to be really bad. And it shouldn't be two. And back to your original thing of saying, like, hey, eventually it's going to get better. If I'm black, I'm like, yeah, I've been hearing that a really long time. It's called gradualism. And it's a whole concept that everything was going to work out eventually. And if I'm black, I'm like, well, hey, this isn't working out. It isn't working out. Went from eight from two, you know, and that's really like, okay, that one's tough to do. But then if you break it down case by case, like here's the Elway one. Okay. Like a lot of people had Elway jokes because Elway said what after he got rid of everybody? He's like, look, it's on me. I take full responsibility. So then other people were like, oh yeah, you take full responsibility, but then you fire everyone except for yourself. Hey, welcome to the way the world works. Okay. What is Elway supposed to do? Fire himself? He's not going to because guess what Elway is? He's a god in that city. He's a guy that played in a million Super Bowls and won two. He's a guy that won another one and played in two as an executive. I'm obviously not himself, but got his team into two. So that's why when everybody rips on Elway, I go, you know, a lot of you guys are talking about Elway like he's Mike Tenenbaum, okay? And that's not what you should be doing, although I need to check myself a little bit and remind not – I've given Elway too much of a past on his draft history. It, he's gone through a really weird stretch of just being bad at it now, and I don't know what's going on there, but that's that's something that I have to bring to the table when I'm discussing Elway. But here's, again, back to the how life works one-on-one. What's Elway supposed to do? Is he supposed to sit up there and go, yes, you're right, internet memes 
I should fire myself. No, I'm in charge of this thing. I get the benefit of the doubt because I am John Elwin. I've been with this franchise for 30 freaking years. And, yeah, I'm going to fire some people. Should I fire Vance Joseph after a year? I guess I could have, but I gave him a second year, and it still didn't work out. And maybe I screwed that up. So now, ironically enough, Denver's going anti what everybody else is doing, but he's trying to get the defense right, which I think has a lot more to do with who Case Keenum is because they figure, like, we don't have this dude as a year or two in that we're still trying to figure out if he can even do this, like a Rosen, like a Darnold. The Baker stuff looked really good, and that whole Baker thing, the Browns can't get enough credit for doing what they did with Baker and having this thing, what appears to be at least a year in, working. Um you know, if the Ravens had moved on from Harbaugh, like my whole thing with Harbaugh is like, are you guys getting rid of him because it just feels stale and it's going in the wrong direction and Flacco stunk for a bunch of years? Okay, fine. And by the way, Lamar was exactly what I thought he would be in the rematch against the Chargers. And I'm not sure if Lamar is going to be any good or not. He runs the football a ton and he doesn't throw it much. And he, whenever he has a big throw, the internet goes crazy because it's like this anti-Bill Polian reaction, but it's still not necessarily all that accurate. And he was terrible, except for late, up against the Chargers. I'm not giving up hope on him. And anybody that suggested that it was a mistake to go to Lamar instead of Flacco hasn't watched Flacco at all. So I backed the Lamar decision with that one. But I kind of like the Ravens just went, hey, we like Harbaugh. Do you like us? Yeah. we Okay, so why are we even doing this? Some of these franchises that move on from coaches just because they feel like they need to. So... Yeah, Arizona could have avoided, um, you know, the PR. All of this stuff collectively became nasty for the league, and maybe it didn't even get as nasty as I thought it was going to get. But I knew it was going to be a negative. But I don't, I don't know how we expect these people to run these businesses. Where if you were with Arizona all year, you would have gone, "This is terrible, and it's not going to work." So am I supposed to do another year like Elway did with Vance Joseph? Am I just supposed to do that? And the stuff that does disappoint me is that it becomes this thing. It's like, oh, well, Wilkes only got a year. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, that that would never happen to us. Okay, so in the last 20 years, we've had 10 coaches last one year. Seven of them are white, three are black. And Jim Tom Sula was Asian, I think. And no one ever brings that up. <laughs> uh, no, he wasn't. So, But, but here, at the end of the day, like yeah. all, all this is is – these guys that are getting head coaching jobs, these offensive gurus, they were get they used to spend years as offensive coordinators, and then they would get head coaching jobs. The problem is all these teams now know that they can't hire them as offensive coordinators because if they do have one good season, they're going to lose them as a head coach somewhere else, right? Absolutely. I mean, so the gauge thing everyone could be a, up. The gauge thing could be a joke. The Kingsbury thing could end up being a disaster. What I'm telling you is that, like, here's a good example. I've always had the no boogie cousins rule. I would never do it. But I absolutely understand why the Warriors did it. They got him for five million bucks and they never thought they were going to be able to get him. From what I've heard, I don't know that they were able to spend that money on anybody else once they struck out on some other players. So like, look, we can not spend any extra money and not add somebody or we can try this and we'll see if it works. And I, even though I don't like him and I wouldn't want him on my team if I were GM, I absolutely understand how they got from point A to point B in making that decision. And that's kind of how I feel with most of these coaching hires. Where I go, I know all the Kingsbury jokes. I, I get every single one of them that's there. But what if he, and apparently this goes back to the front office scouting Mahomes and spending all this time in Lubbock with Kingsbury, and there's a relationship that goes much deeper than we'd ever even known. What I don't understand is why did Kingsbury go to USC so quickly? And I've heard that, you know, he actually, 
this sounds kind of familiar, wanted to go to L.A. for a year and just sort of see what it was like. Um, but a much more important job than, say, a podcast where he was going to be running the offense for USC. But why did you take that so quickly? If I knew that there was going to be interest, if you got fired from Lubbock from the NFL, how did you not know it? That's the thing I don't understand. Like, why did you sign? Did you do the USC thing? Was it your safety school? And they didn't know that? And then the funny thing is, like, they weren't going to let him talk to anybody. And then I thought, wait a minute, does Kingsbury maybe just not even want to go to the Jets? They're like, no, he actually does want to be a head coach. So I don't – I understand the pushback, and maybe the people making fun of it are going to be right about this. The odds are in your favor. They always guys get fired anyway. So all your jokes are going to work probably. I'm just somebody that would rather look at every hire individually and go, okay, I, yeah, that, that one I get. All right, that one makes sense. I see why they did that. I think it's wrong. Instead of just making this headline thing, which is what we do now, we go look at all these hires, you know, all these different things. And look, I don't, I hope because, and I'm not around a ton of youth football, but I hope because as we see in college, like I don't think we're doing this, this black quarterback debate thing the way like a Warren Moon, if you told him, Oh no, it's getting better, Warren Moon, he'd be like, Oh really? Like screw you. Like, Warren Moon deserves to have all the animosity in the world against pro football with all the crap that he had to deal with. So I, like you, I hope it is getting better and that eventually the the candidates become from a more diverse pool, but it starts with actually who is playing the position because once you play it, then you get to coach it, and it's tougher for somebody like, hey, what'd you work with? Oh, I work with DNs. Oh, really? You worked with defensive ends for 10 years? Okay, we just drafted a rookie quarterback. You're our new OC. Awesome. I don't have anything uh, that I want to do more on the Harden thing because I, I mentioned it. Milwaukee overplayed his left hand like I've never really seen. And Van Gundy was awesome because he wasn't really convinced it was working. He did have 42 points. If you saw the game, it felt like it was working, but I don't know. I don't think it was. I thought it was something that was new, that was different, that was something exciting to talk about. But it is worth pointing out because you're going to see other teams try to do it. It screwed him up, and it clogged him up on a few things. Capella made a bunch of mistakes, and Harden did have turnovers. But then I looked at it because I was – Going, I don't really know if this is actually working because they're giving him a free run to the rim. I was like, oh, he has 20 at the half. Oh, he has 42. His shooting numbers weren't great, and he had turnovers. So there were parts of it that worked. But Milwaukee won the game when Harden sat out. That's actually when they won. So I'm pointing that out because I do think it's going to be something that can be really interesting uh, with how teams try to deal with him. And if we have one more Sports Center 25-year-old kid running the, the Sports Center Twitter feed that when Harden just viciously shoves... Um, his defender down to the ground, and then the kid running the Sports Center feed goes hard and putting him on skates. Like if I see that one one more time, I'm unfollowing it. I may block Sports Center from seeing my content. That's how serious I am about this. Good day, sir. And another thing, the podcast continues to grow. Every time we drop an episode, it becomes a top ten episode up there with the biggest of the hitters. So please subscribe as much as you can. Rate, review, tell everybody about it, and we'll keep this thing going. Thank you as always.